testing. One, two, three, testing. Hello, and welcome to our podcast. This is Hypochondriac's Almanac. We are stoked to be here recording for you guys this evening. I'm Sarah, and this is Katrina. Say hi, Katrina. Hi. In case you were wondering, this is a podcast for all of you out there that secretly think you have a disease every time you have a sniffle, a slight twinge, or a headache. It's not a tumor. We understand, we identify, and we have definitely scoped out MD, WebMD more than a few hundred times. We are here to talk weird diseases, strange illnesses, crazy syndromes, and rare disorders. But before we get started, we need to do our standard disclaimers. First and foremost, we are not doctors, nurses, or medical professions of any kind. Although Katrina is studying to be a nurse. But please, please, please do not take anything we say on the show as medical advice. We are not trying to treat, diagnose, or fix your medical conditions. If you have an issue... Please see a doctor. Do not guess or take what we say as a diagnostic tool. We want to talk about all the fun and weird parts of the medical world in the past, present, and future. Let's jump right in. All right, Miss Katrina, let's do this. My first topic for the day is... Dun-dun-dun. Flesh-eating bacteria. So I found the first part of this on WebMD. So this is called necrotizing fasciitis, which is a rare infection that is described in media reports as a condition involving flesh-eating bacteria. Super creepy. And it can also be fatal if it is not treated promptly and properly. It spreads quickly and aggressively in an infected person. It can cause tissue death on the infection site and throughout the body. Every year, about 600 to 700 cases are diagnosed in the U.S., and about 25 to 30% of these result in death. Interestingly enough, it rarely occurs in children. But the primary ways that people get this particular disease is that it enters the body through minor cuts, insect bites, and abrasions. In some it's cases, not an STD? No. In some cases, it's unknown how the infection began, but once it takes hold, it can rapidly destroy muscle, skin, and fat tissues. So it sounds pretty nasty, but it is also caused by a common strain of strep throat. It's the same kind of bacteria that causes the strep throat. Streptococcus? Yep. Um, So the symptoms are of this particular infection slash illness usually occur within the first 24 hours of infection. And they often include a combination of the following. So look out for these bad boys. Increasing pain in the general area of the minor cut, abrasion, or skin opening. Pain that is worse than would be expected from the appearance of the skin, or appearance of a cut or abrasion. Redness and warmth around the wound, through the, though the symptoms can begin in other parts of the body. People also experience flu-like symptoms like diarrhea, nausea, fever, dizziness, weakness, and general malaise. Intense thirst and dehydration are also um, things that happen. 
but more advanced symptoms can occur around the painful infection site within two to, excuse me, within three to four days of infection, which includes swelling, possibly accompanied, I can't even speak, swelling, possibly accompanied by a purplish rash, large violet-colored marks that transform into blisters filled with dark, foul-smelling liquid, discoloration, peeling, and flakiness tissue death gangrene also occurs. Critical symptoms which occur within five to seven days of infection include severe drop in blood pressure, toxic shock, and unconsciousness. So be on the lookout for that super creepy stuff. Does it say that there are certain areas or locations where this is commonly seen in? Locations of the country or locations of the body? Uh, no. Locations of the country. Nope. Uh, okay. Does it say that... As I'm pretty sure that it happens more in warm regions. Warmer lo- locations. But, um, I also found this article on the WashingtonPost.com, which is an actual case that they talked about, and the article is called, A Man Went Crabbing and Came Back with Flesh-Eating Bacteria That Now Threatens His Life. So the article is by Clive Woodson Jr., or Cleve Woodson Jr., and came out this last July, and it's, um, here it goes, Angel Perez arrived at the river before sunrise, beating the other crabbers on the hunt at Matt's Landing in New Jersey, a popular spot to find crustaceans near the Maurice River where it meets the Delaware Bay. It was still morning on July 2nd when he returned home with a haul of freshly snagged crabs and unknown to him at the time, something much worse. By July 3rd, his right leg was swollen. Then it turned red and broke out in blisters. He had issues with Parkinson's disease already, so we hear complaints like that often. We're used to them, his daughter told the Washington Post, but he was like, this is different. Doctors at an urgent care facility first thought it was a minor bacterial infection, but on a second trip to the hospital's emergency room, doctors diagnosed cellulitis. It wasn't until the third trip that the redness and blistering migrated to his other leg, and they began to suspect that the potentially fatal ailment at the root of his symptoms was a flesh-eating bacterial known as Vibro or Vibrio. The brackish places where rivers meet the sea are also prime habitat for vibrio or vibrio. So when you ask for areas, it's the brackish places where rivers meet seas are good places for this bacteria to kind of grow and, and thrive. So moist areas. Yep. Some of the bacteria had apparently found an open sore or cut in Perez's ankle. Just three days later, the bacteria had spread, threatening his limbs and his life. Since then, he's been at a hospital with a 24-hour on-call anesthesiologist ready in case he needs emergency surgery. Dozens of family members have stopped in his room in the intensive care unit. About about 80,000 people get some form of vibriosis every year, usually from eating raw or undercooked shellfish, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. For most, the worst symptoms are diarrhea and vomiting, but a few unlucky people get a life-threatening strand that can enter an open sore and make it into the bloodstream, wreaking havoc. The bacterium can invade the bloodstream, causing severe and life-threatening illness with symptoms like fever, chills, decreased blood pressure, septic shock, and blistering skin lesions. 
Aggressive attention should be given to the wound site for patients with wound infections. Amputation of the infected limb is sometimes necessary. Peak infection time, and this is important for people that live near where the rivers meet the ocean, is from May to October when the water is warmest. These months also happen to be peak crabbing season where this gentleman caught the illness. He, Perez was born in Puerto Rico where he grew up with an affinity for cars, driving street mechanic, doing street mechanic repair jobs for friends and family. He brought these skills with him when he came to the U.S. mainland in the 80s and took formal classes to become an auto mechanic. In 89, he opened a used car dealership. This is also the year his daughter was born. Things changed in 2006 when he began to show the first signs of Parkinson's disease. He had always been active, uh, but now he could no longer trust that he would be able to be. But when he found about, out that he enjoyed crabbing, he threw himself into his new hobby, usually arriving before dawn and with his family members along with him. Um, by Tuesday, more than 80 members of Perez's family had streamed into his hospital room. His visible signs of infection was now in all four limbs. And the bacteria do not appear to be in his bloodstream, but that doesn't mean they aren't in his muscles and skin or that they have stopped spreading. So he's keeping a positive oh. attitude but it's probably a pretty scary experience for him just not even knowing what the heck is going on. Like I remember reading a news article about a similar type of instance, I don't know, six or eight months ago about a young woman who was zip lining and she caught the bacteria through like an open cut when she landed or like scraped herself off the zip line. And I think it was in South America, and she ended up having to have all four of her limbs amputated because it just went into the bloodstream and it just got crazy infection like throughout her body from that one little incident zip lining. So super, super scary. Not something you want to mess around with. So if you are going to be in one of those regions during that time of the year from May to October when it's warm and the water is warm as well. You need to be super, super careful. Try to keep those, if you have any, just inspect yourself for like open wounds and try to keep all those clean because you never know what could happen. And if you have cuts or open sores or abrasions, do not go in the water. It's just better to be safe than sorry. Cool. Aliens. I think it was caused by aliens. No, everything can't be caused <laughs> by aliens. Okay, maybe so, it was the humming rocks. Could be, but flesh-eating bacteria sounds pretty doggone scary. Um, and something that you don't want to ever have to experience in your lifetime. Am I right? No, that sounds horrible. That sounds horrible. So, and just anyway. a little scratch. I mean, it can come. It can happen in just a little little open sore. Yeah. It takes just a tiny little scratch for it to get in there. Super, super freaky. All right. What is the topic that you have for us? What's your first topic today, Katrina? Okay. So my topic is on a woman named Victoria Arlen. And I had first seen her on Dancing with the Stars. And um, her story is so fascinating to me because she was in a coma for four years. Uh, so, um, I so I chose an article from uh, People.com, 
Uh, it's called Trapped in Her Paralyzed Body, How Dancing with the Stars, Victoria Arlen Survived Two Years uh, Conscious While Unable to Move. So two of the years she was not conscious, and two of the years she was. Okay. So here's the story. Victoria, Victoria Arlen was the last kid you'd ever expect would end up in the hospital. She never got sick. But around her 11th birthday, Arlen began frequently getting frequent colds and flus. Doctors were perplexed as her health deteriorated. By July 2006, she began feeling numbness in her feet. Two weeks later, she was hospitalized. She lost mobility and cognitive function. My nerves were dying, she says. I literally watched as my body shut down. She would eventually be diagnosed with transverse myelitis, an acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, two rare autoimmune conditions that cause inflammation of the spinal cord and brain. But at the time, doctors were unable to diagnose Arlen and advised her parents to take her home. Her family moved a hospital bed into the ground floor of their two-story house. I never gave up hope that she would fully recover, says her mom, Jacqueline. But Arlen has no memory of the next two years. Towards the end of 2008, she regained some cognitive function, but there were still long periods of time she remained completely paralyzed and suffered severe seizures as frequently as every few minutes. I was really scared, she says, of being able to hear her doctors and loved ones, but being unable to let them know she was conscious. I knew if I just stopped fighting, I would be in pain. I wouldn't be in pain or suffering anymore, but dying was the easy way out. So Arlen kept her mind busy, writing screenplays in her head, praying and visualizing the life she still wanted to live. I kept reminding myself of what was good and that I was still there, she says. But in 2009, just three months after turning 15, Arlen woke to find she regained control of her eyes. From there, from there, it was miracle after miracle, she says, of slowly regaining feeling in the upper half of her body. Dr. Michael Levy, a professional neurology at John Hopkins, was ha- who has treated Arlen says only third of patients recover from transverse myelitis like Arlen has. Dr. Levy says Arlen's age and overall good health prior to her transverse myelitis episode was a major factor in her ability to recover. Arlen remained reliant on her wheelchair until her brothers strapped a life vest on her and threw her into the pool. So she went on and did some amazing things. She she speaks um, at at different events, and um, she is amazing. Like, her her whole entire story is amazing. It doesn't give much uh, in this article about after what happened, but she eventually went on to walk again, um, can dance, move, do, do everything normal now, and is just an amazing person. And in the story, so I also watched a, um, doc, uh, not a document, an interview. I can't remember who was interviewing her, but they said, uh, the mom was in the interview too. And the mom said that, uh, the first thing that she noticed was that her eyes started tracking her. Whereas before there was no movement. And then, then eventually she, 
she asked her, she's like, if you can hear me, uh, move your eyes a certain way or blink or something like that. And she did. And she was like, oh my gosh, she's in there. And so then from then on, they were like, oh, we know she's in there. And then she made this amazing recovery. That's awesome. Good for her. Yeah. It's such a cool story. Like every time I hear it, I get chills. Every time I hear but it, can I get you imagine like what that would be like to be trapped in your body for two years and not be able to communicate or talk and be, but be able to like think about things and how horrible that would be. Every time I hear that kind of a story, I'm like, what disease does she have? What were her symptoms? What if that happened to me? <laughs> the true hypochondriac in me pops out and I'm like, oh my God, that would be so terrifying. Well, like I said, she started out where she was getting uh, the cold, colds and flus a whole bunch, and then she started getting numbness in her feet, and she just slowly kind of started declining to the point where she stopped being able to function at all. And then also in the interview, it talked. she talked about the doctor who was treating her, and because she was having these seizures multiple times a day, uh, she the doctor gave her like this medication to help with that and they helped her to eventually come out of it was because it was helping her to not have all these seizures. So she was able to start to recover. Yeah. So, and then there was another article that I read that had talked about how they could have avoided it. Now there's a injection you can take like a steroid injection that, uh, you don't get those symptoms. So they could they could have avoided all of that. But yeah. the doctors just didn't have enough information they didn't know. So it's kind of, it's just an amazing story. Oh, and she was the, the triplet. Ooh. She has two brothers. Nice. That must have been very hard for them to, like, deal with that. Because don't twins have, like, this kind of weird connection? Where they feel mm-hmm. what the other one is feeling and experience all the things and the emotions and some kind of telepathic connection between the, the siblings. She says that they used to come into her room and talk to her and tell her stories about what things were going on and that was part of what helped her keep going. That gave her hope, like gave her something besides thinking about being, she said she would stare at the wall because she couldn't stare at anything. There was nothing else to do. Oh my god, that is just horrifying. Yeah, that's everybody's, like, worst nightmare. Absolutely. Well. So what you got? We are at the halfway point, and you know what that means. It's time for some halftime fun. This is the portion of the show where we like to talk about some current health news. Halftime! Halftime! So today I want to talk about an interesting topic, an article that has been in the news quite extensively. Um, And this is the case of the woman in a coma who gave birth. And this brings up a whole host of issues. I don't know if you've heard about this, but the article that I found... Um, I did. It's been splashed all over the news lately, but the primary article that I first found was on CNN.com, and it is by Sarah Was it the disabled girl? Yes. It's by Sarah Sidner and Keith Allen, and the title of the article is, A woman who was in a vegetative state for years gave birth. Police want DNA from men who work at the facility. 
So here goes. Uh, police investigators have begun to gather DNA from men who work at an Arizona care facility where a woman in a vegetative state gave birth last month. Phoenix Police Sergeant Tom, Tommy Thompson said Wednesday that the woman and child who was in medical distress after being delivered December 29th remain in the hospital. CNN is not reporting the woman's name because she's the victim of sexual abuse. But detective, detectives have asked men in the Hacienda Healthcare Facility in Phoenix to give buccal swabs. Investigators got court order for those who didn't voluntarily give samples. There is no suspect, Thompson said. The family obviously is outraged, traumatized, and in shock by the abuse and neglect of their daughter at the Hacienda Healthcare Facility, the family attorney said. The family would like me to convey that the baby boy has been born into a loving family and will be well cared for. Um, Thompson said the sexual assault investigation will take some time. We're not going to point out who we've obtained DNA from or who we intend to get DNA from, he said, but suffice to say, it is a large number of individuals. We have a very wide scope. She's a member of the San Carlos Apache tribe and has long been in a vegetative state. San Carlos Apache tribe chairman Terry Rambler called for justice. The woman has been a patient at the facility since 1992, according to court records. She had been a patient at the facility for at least a decade following a near-drowning accident. Um, the Phoenix-based station of CNN affiliate KPHO-KTVK said, um, Hacienda officials have called the situation deeply disturbing and they are cooperating with law enforcement and state agencies. The company's chief executive officer, Bill Timmons, resigned Monday. Um, and then they say Hacienda will accept nothing less than a full accounting of this absolutely horrifying situation. This is an unprecedented case that has devastated everyone involved from the victim to and her family to the Hacienda staff at every level in our organization. Um, and I'm just going to stop reading there. But it says that they ordered Hacienda to implement heightened safety measures. Um, but the changes have apparently been made, that steps have been taken to protect anyone that's there, blah, blah, blah. But... I find this particularly disturbing because number one, like who in the hell would do something to somebody in a vegetative state who can't react? Just, it's horrifying. And then there was a follow-up article to this that came out a couple days later, which says, and this was on abcnews.go.com. And it was titled, it's by Julia Jacobo, and it's titled, Phoenix Police Arrest Former Nurse After Woman in Vegetative State Gives Birth. Police in Arizona have made an arrest in connection with a woman who gave birth while in a vegetative state. The 36-year-old suspect, Nathan Sutherland, was arrested after investigators obtained a DNA sample. And they determined that his DNA matched the baby's DNA, and he was booked into the Maricopa County Jail without bond on Tuesday after being charged with one count of vulnerable adult abuse and one count of sexual assault. Authorities say he was responsible for caring for the woman at the time of the alleged abuse that appears to have resulted in the pregnancy. He was a licensed practical nurse at the Hacienda Healthcare in Phoenix since 2011, police said. He was identified as a person who had access to the victim in this case, and investigators obtained a DNA sample using a court order. He was not working at the time police retrieved the evidence. And the statement released through the family's attorney said they were aware of the arrest but declined to comment further, asking for privacy. So on Tuesday, Michaels released a statement saying the family would like to make clear that their daughter is not in a coma. So she's in a vegetative state but not a coma. 
She has significant intellectual disabilities as a result of seizures very early in her childhood. She does not speak, but has some ability to move her limbs, head, and neck. Their daughter responds to sound and is able to make facial gestures. The important thing is that she is a beloved daughter, albeit with significant intellectual disabilities. She has feeling, feelings, likes to be read to, enjoys soft music, and is capable of responding to people she is familiar with, especially family. The difference between being in a coma and being in a vegetative state is that a patient in a coma is completely unresponsive, does not react to light or sound, cannot feel pain, and whose eyes remain closed. Comas normally last for a finite period of time, days, weeks, or even months, according to the nonprofit American Hospice Foundation, but a patient in a vegetative state is still unconscious, but, in a but the condition can be characterized by involuntary eye movement, teeth grinding, and facial expressions. Um, some patients in a vegetative state can remain for years or indefinitely. So this is obviously a very deeply distressing and just terrible incident. And it's just awful. Ten years. It is. That's, that sick. That's sick. That's so sick. And the fact that she gave birth and nobody, nobody knew nobody that she, knew she was, was pregnant, pregnant until she gave birth. Yeah, it's just insane. And she obviously has some feelings because she enjoys being read to. Like, she's not completely... So, obviously, I mean, she could feel what was going on. So, that's horrible. This poor little... It, it just... It, it sickens me to know that there's people... Like, people like that need to... They need... I, I don't know. I'm... Totally for the death penalty right. for people given the death penalty. do horrible things like that. Well, and the thing is, I have to wonder about, like, what kind of measures are in place that allow somebody of the opposite sex to be in caring for, bathing, dealing with someone with disabilities on alone. And I understand that there are budgetary constraints um, with respect to people that have either been in a vegetative state or in a coma, because that can be very expensive to care for someone with disabilities over the long term. And I get it. It's, you know, they can barely afford one nurse to be with their, their injured person or vegetative person. But at the same time, there need to be some sort of situations in place that protect these people because they clearly cannot protect themselves. And it is horrifying to think of some poor person being stuck and have being forced to endure sexual assault by some fucking moron, sick monster who gets off on doing this. Because that's clearly what he was. And it's like, they have all these stories and stuff about this guy's neighbor saying, oh, he seems like such a normal guy and we don't know why he would do something like that. And he, had, he was married and had a family. And it's like, it's sickos like that that are worse than the ones that are obvious from the outside because they're psychopaths. Well, yeah, psychopaths, I mean, there's no rhyme or reason. They just, they don't appear to be, they're very charming, you know? A lot of them are. Which, Which makes you more wonder, and that's the thing. I worked in a nursing home and that was the thing. There were males that worked there and it does make you wonder because they are in those rooms, um, undressing them. They, they're doing stuff and they're alone with them and there's no safety procedures in place. I, I mean, there might, doubt. Be, there might be rules about it now, but 
I honestly doubt, too, that someone of the opposite sex, if they could understand who was taking care of them, I really doubt that they would agree to or even want somebody of the opposite sex caring for them in that state. I wouldn't. No. So it's just, it's a, it's a really scary type situation. And they say, you know, this is an opportunity to, to make advances and to put safety measures in place, but this, this shit should have already been in place. And the thing is, this Hacienda healthcare facility had already had numerous complaints and there were some really significant um, wrongdoings and just real shady stuff going on at that particular facility and just not a lot of oversight going on. Which is not But it's surprising. not just those kind of, it's not just one facility. This is, this is like, I've spoke to a lot of people who worked, because I work, used to work as a CNA, yeah. that work in these type of facilities. There, there are very few facilities that are actually caring for the patients properly. Yeah, this is a huge, I remember huge the first issue. time I came down on the floor and to work with patients with head injuries, the smell alone knocks you over. It it smells it smelled horrible, like urine and and crap. Yeah. And 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 then not just that, but then when you see the type where how the patients are being cared for, I remember I came home and I cried for like three hours because nobody should have to live that way it's the quality of care in these facilities are so poor i think that there might be a few facilities out there i haven't seen any yet but i think that there are a few out there that have higher quality of care but i haven't seen any we need some major major revisions in our healthcare system and how we I heard, I, I heard somewhere we should take we should put all of our elderly and sickly in prisons in the prison system cuz they'll get better care. Yeah. That's truly horrifying. We, we take better care of our prisoners than we do our elderly. Yeah. And disabled. Yeah. Which is a horrible horrible oh it just makes me so frustrated i can't even speak yeah so i mean and the thing is there are not very many of us who don't know somebody at some point in our life who has been in one of these kind of facilities whether it be somebody that was in an accident who's younger who now requires pretty extensive care or whether it is Mm -hmm. you know your grandparent or an aunt or an uncle who unfortunately had to go into that type of care and it is it's a really, really sad situation, and we need a major, major overhaul in the way we deal with, take care of, and fund um, these types of facilities and how we care for our, our disabled and elderly. Well, not only that, but the families stopped coming. There was this uh, 16-year-old girl that came into the facility. She was She was in a drunk driving accident with her boyfriend. He came out perfectly fine. She went through the windshield hit a tree and part of her and her uh skull was in it was dented in yeah like she was missing a huge chunk of her skull she was in uh she was like it was she was like had the mentality of a six-month-old baby when she first came in the family came in a little bit but then they eventually stopped coming so this poor girl goes through this crazy tragedy and then is spending the rest of her life in that 
place. Alone. And the quality of care, care is so poor. And she was a beautiful young woman. Just so, really, really and her care, like, they don't even get turned, like, they have to be turned so that they don't get bed sores. They're yeah. not even getting turned properly, and the, and the, they don't have enough patient to uh, caregiver ratio. They don't have enough caregivers to take care of the patients, and no. so that they don't get enough care. Yeah. It's really sad. And then they... They don't get bathed enough. That's why they smell. Because they had, like, one person who did baths. So th- the smell in there was horrible. And it's not their fault. They can't control any of that. They can't. Some of them have, like, colonoscopy bags. They, uh, they're they unable to go to the bathroom by the, um, on their own. It's just it's a really, really awful, awful tragedy. And the fact that this story came out, as soon as I read about it, I was just absolutely horrified. Horrible. Yeah, I read it too. It was pretty, I was very disturbed by it. It made me want to, like, seriously do some damage. Vigilante right? justice style on this <laughs> Vigilante asshole style. that yeah. did this to her. Yeah, I'm all for for the death penalty for people or like that. castration. I'm pretty yeah. much good for that, some, too. Something equally, yeah. And they better not let this guy out, which they probably will. It's just, it's just the way it works. It's awful. Yeah. All right. So moving along to the next topic, I think we've covered that one pretty adequately. Um, we're going to go on to topic number three. Um, and I decided to talk about something called exploding head syndrome. Dun, dun, dun. Exploding head syndrome? Yeah. So I got this particular bit of information from WebMD.com, one of my favorite resources there. Um, but it says, although its name is very vivid, exploding head syndrome is not painful. It's where you imagine a loud noise right before you fall asleep or wake up. It may sound like fireworks, a bomb exploding, or a loud crash. Some people have described it as a gunshot, cymbals crashing, or a lightning strike. Even though it doesn't hurt, it can cause confusion. As it's happening, you may think you're in the midst of a heart attack or a stroke. Sometimes you might just imagine the loud sound. Other times you may also have a, see a flash of light or muscle twitch at the same time. Episodes could come every so often. You may hear several sounds in one night, and you could have a lot of them in a short period, but none for a long time. Researchers don't know what causes exploding head syndrome, but there are different opinions as to its cause. Sometimes scientists think it could be minor seizures in the temporal lobe of the brain, sudden shifts in the part of the middle ear, stress, or anxiety. Noise may not be exploding head syndrome. It could also be the result of something else, like another sleep disorder, side effect from the medicine that you take, a medical or mental health condition, drug or alcohol abuse. Um, we don't know how many people actually have exploding head syndrome, but we do know that women are more likely to have it than men, and people older than 50 are more likely to have it. Kids as young as 10 can get it too, though. Um, diagnosis is usually through a specialist, um, and a sleep medicine specialist can also diagnose. Um, they'll usually ask when the sound started, how often they happen, and how long they last. Um, they tell you to take a, to keep a sleep diary, 
Um, and then there are some other treatments for it, such as antidepressants. Um, calcium channel blockers could also help, but they suggest people try yoga, relaxing, listening to easy listening music, reading, or a warm bath before bed. So it sounds like it would be a super terrifying, weird syndrome when you hear the name, but it turns out it's not quite as scary as it sounds. I actually think I've experienced it before. What about you, Katrina? No, I've never experienced that, but I thought for sure when you said that that, that it was going to actually be heads exploding. No, no. It's like a loud clanging sound <laughs> that kind of wakes you up as you're about to fall asleep. Or like a crashing yeah. or explosion. I've definitely had that happen. And they say that the never had that, that kind of stuff can be a lot worse if you're stressed, or if you're not getting enough sleep, or if you've got some sort of a vitamin imbalance in your body. I think you can control it to some degree, but it's probably a little bit like the alien hand syndrome where it becomes more of a mental disorder than an actual illness. Involved. Are you saying that this was invented by aliens? <laughs> I think we've got a definite theme <laughs> running through the show today, and that involves aliens. Everything has to do with aliens. We're going to have to do a whole episode just on alien stories, because I swear to God, I've read, seen, and heard some super, super interesting stuff with regard to aliens, but for now... We should do an alien show, for sure. Now, I want to do Roswell. Yes, that'll definitely be something we'll have to address at some point in the show or another. But for now, um, what is the fourth topic and final topic for our show that you have uh, found for us today, Miss Katrina? Okay. Aliens probably created this one too, but you know, you never know. It's the Dancing Plague of 1518. We're bringing it way back on this one. We're taking it way back. I pulled the source from IFL Science. I think that's I F and Love Science. Yeah. But hello. it just says IFL.com. It's called the St. Vitus Dancing Plague. Toward the end of the Middle Ages in Europe, there was a high number of reports of dancing mania seeming out of nowhere. Huge groups of people were consumed with an urge to dance, violently jigging around until they collapsed from exhaustion. Sounds like the Macarena when, trend back in the 90s. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> Line dancing. Maybe they were doing the Macarena. Possibly. One of the biggest dance plagues ever documented occurred in June 24, 1374 in Aachen, modern-day Germany. One account from 1888 recalls this event. They formed circles hand-in-hand and appeared to have lost all control over their senses. For hours together in wild delirium, delirium until at length they fell to the ground in a state of exhaustion. Sounds like fun. Yeah. Another outbreak in 1518 in Strasbourg saw over 400 people dance for weeks on end until dozens died of exhaustion. Since this happened centuries ago, it's unclear if this was a genuine condition or a social phenomenon. After all, confused historians in the future may try to understand the Harlem Shake or planking in a few centuries. However, modern researchers have suggested that the dancing mania may have been caused by a few things 
ergot poisoning from rotting rye, epilepsy, typhus, or even a kind of shared mania induced by the stress of living in the grim dark ages. Wow. So, uh, it in uh, the wiki on wikipedia.org, it has they have some theories. Uh, the modern theories include food poisoning caused by the toxic and psychoactive chemicals produced of ergot fungi, which grows commonly on grains in the wheat family, mm-hmm. such as rye. But that was di- didn't really hold up because the theory does not seem, now I'm not sure how to say this, tenable, T-E-N-A-B-L-E. Mm-hmm. Tenable, since it is unlikely that those poisoned by ergot could have danced for days at a time, nor would so many people have reacted to its psychotropic chemicals in the same way. The ergotism theory also fails to explain why virtually every outbreak, outbreak occurred somewhere along the Rhine and Mosel rivers, areas linked by water, but with quite different climates and crops. Waller suspects that the dancing was stress-induced psychosis on a mass level, since the region where the people danced was riddled with starvation and disease, and the inhabitants tended to be superstitious. Seven other cases of dancing plague were reported in the same region during the medieval era. This could have been the... the florid example of psychogenic movement disorder happening in mass hysteria or mass psychogenetic illness, which involves many individuals, small groups, almost a thousand people, suddenly exhibiting the same bizarre behavior. The behavior spreads rapidly and broadly in an epidemic pattern. The sufferers are primarily adolescent females. The kind of compartment... I'm sorry, what? I said it's interesting that they're this kind females. This most likely females that get it. This kind of comportment could have been caused by elevated levels of psychological stress, the despair caused by intensely ruthless years, even by the rough standards of the Middle Ages. The people of Alsace were suffering. This psychogenetic illness could have created chorea which is Greek for to dance, a situation comprising random and intricate unintentional movements that flit from body part to body part. Hmm. Yeah. So to treat this, the physician historical documents um, included, it was historically documented uh, by physicians, notes, cathedral sermons, local and regional chronicles, and even notes issued by the Strasbourg City Council are clear that the victims danced. It is not known why these people danced, some even to their deaths. As the dancing plague worsened, concerned nobles sought the advice of local physicians who ruled out astrological and supernatural causes, instead announcing that the so plague was, was a natural disease caused by hot blood. Hot blood. Yes, hot blood. However, instead of prescribing bleeding, authorities encouraged more dancing, in part by opening (laughs) two guild halls and grain markets and even constructing a wooden stage. The authorities did this because they believed that the dancers would recover if they danced continuously night and day. To increase the effectiveness of the cure, authorities even paid for musicians to keep the afflicting moving. 
The strategy was a disaster, obviously. After those policies were applied, the illness underwent dramatic growth. It only got worse after that. Performing dances in more public spaces facilitated the spread of psychotic contagion. Fun. Yeah. Sounds like a real good time. Yeah. And a good time was had by all. (laughs) Until they died. Yeah. Oh, Can you imagine anything to do with lead poisoning? I don't know. It doesn't. I mean, they can only speculate. It's all kinds of like crazy toxic crap they were like being exposed to, especially like back in those days. The makeup that women would wear on their faces was like filled with lead and well, it did say mercury. It did say that craziness. the outbreak occurred somewhere along the Rhine and Mosel rivers. So it was near, linked by water. I don't know. They really didn't have any clue about pollution either. And, you know, the way they treated, cured leather and all kinds of other stuff back then was certainly not in a manner that was probably EPA safe. But what's interesting about that is generally people do have different reactions to different toxic chemicals so if it was a toxic chemical thing why would they be dancing so many people too like in a big group of people is what is so perplexing to me that was that's a lot of people to just up and start dancing until they die i mean i think that the best theory is probably mass hysteria just because of the things that they were going through well, it certainly was a very stressful, harsh, and scary existence back then. I mean, I think that they're, um, they didn't live to be very old. I mean, the, the chances of living past the age of 40 were pretty much slim to none. So, of course you want to dance it up and live while you're young and active and fun, you know? Yeah, but I don't know if I, you know, I like to dance, but I don't want to die. Right, but then, you know, think about what the primary activities were back then as well. Like, you, you're working, like, in the fields. So it sounds like a pretty good excuse to get yourself out of working in the fields, right? Yeah, I guess. I don't want to go out and plow and plant seeds. I want to go dance. And if I pretend like I'm crazy, then I can get away from having to plow and sow seeds in the fields. But that's a large amount of people, like, to just go nuts until you die. Like, how many people would actually dance until they die? Like, you'd eventually just be like, I'm tired, I'm going to lay down. and sit it out for now. So, but then again, the life expectancy was so young back then, and they didn't understand a lot of mental health issues, so... Who knows what? Well, and I wonder if it's a, could possibly. I wonder if it's along the lines of the alien hand syndrome. I don't know that. Is it like something similar to that? You know, but your whole entire body. But that's like mentally, or not mentally. That's like something that's been diagnosed and officially like charted out recently. Like this whole dancing syndrome thing hasn't really been experienced since the Middle Ages, right? Right, but what I'm saying is I wonder if it's something similar like that. Something where your body is reacting in a way that you have no control over. 
or understanding of. Yeah. Yes. It is entirely possible uh, for that to be the case, but I guess we'll never know. <laughs> it's one of those interesting little mysteries that we're, we're never going to truly probably understand unless we have another outbreak of dancing illness. <laughs> Well, this one, this the, the one from 1518, that one was highly documented. Right, but it was still 1518, and they really didn't have an understanding of medical conditions or mental health conditions back then. So who well, knows if the way they were describing exactly like, and analyzing and diagnosing was even like remotely acceptable or kosher. Well, then my brain always also goes to at how much of that was like telephone. You know, it could have been just, like, 10 people, and then it, they just blew it up into 400 people. Yeah. I mean, it probably and had a pretty good tendency to exaggerate a little bit back then. That's true. True that. Well, we are going to go ahead and wrap up this episode for this time, since we've been recording for almost an hour here. So this cool, is cool. where we say goodbye for now. So long, farewell, rate, review, and subscribe. Also, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, like we always say, keep them to yourself. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, we, we love your emails. Send any emails you have to us um, with show suggestions or questions or corrections. Um, you can send those to hypochondriacpodcast at gmail.com. It is all spelled out there. H-Y-P-O-C-H-O-N-D-R-I-A-C podcast at gmail.com. Please, please, please. If you have a medical condition or a medical issue that you have questions about or that you are fearful about or anxious about, please see a doctor. Um, that is very, very important to us. It's mental health and physical health and taking care of yourself is hugely important nowadays. There are just too many things going around that you don't need to mess with. Just go see a doctor. Uh, please join us again next week when we will talk more about strange medical news, conditions, and treatments. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye!